Welcome to Conjuncture. My name is Jordan Camp. I'm really delighted to be here with Zachary Levinson. Zach is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and he is also a research associate at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. He has published widely in a number of influential venues, including the Du Bois Review, Qualitative Sociology, and the Journal of Agrarian Change. He is also an editor for the Marxist journal, Spectre, which promotes debates on the left in the US and the world. His new book is Delivery as Dispossession, the subtitle Land, Occupation, and Eviction in the Post-Apartheid City was just published by Oxford. Zine Magubani calls it a must read. The late Mike Davis described it as pathbreaking. Through extensive archival and ethnographic research, Zach innovates the study of land occupation and evictions in post-apartheid South Africa. In this deeply researched study, he theorizes the management of surplus populations and the challenges to landlessness in this explosive conjuncture. I'm very excited to speak with him today about delivery as dispossession, Gramscian social theory, and hegemonic struggles at present. So thanks so much for making the time to speak with me, Zach. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Wonderful to be here, Jordan. Welcome. Uh, so I want to start by talking about the core intervention of delivery as dispossession. You argue that after 1994 and the introduction of a new constitution in 1996, that you see a new relationship between uh, dispossession and housing delivery. I wonder if you could talk about that argument. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let me say a bit about what I mean by these two words in the, the title, right? Delivery and dispossession, because I think we often don't talk about, don't use delivery in this way. So by delivery, I'm talking about housing delivery and quite literally the provision of millions of formal homes by the government. Um, Dispossession, of course, I'm talking about people being forcibly removed from their homes, forcibly relocated. And typically the way that this gets narrated is that apartheid was this position of, of uh, was this, um, this period of, of dispossession. And so apartheid being 1948 to 1994, we could even take it back a bit and say the arrival of the Dutch in the mid 17th century. And so this long, centuries long period of colonialism when black people were forcibly displaced from the land relegated eventually in the 19th century to or early 20th century to just 13% of the entire national landmass. Um, but this earlier period gets called dispossession. And then we think of post-apartheid democracy as this period of delivery. And so whether we call it land restitution or the provision of formal housing, um, what I'm trying to do in the book is actually write against this neat separation, this neat kind of analytic separation, right? I'm interested in um, you could say the articulation between delivery and dispossession. And, and in particular, I really want to get at how the relationship between delivery and dispossession changes over time in each period. So in, in the apartheid period, I would say that, um, that delivery enables dispossession. In other words, when three and a half million black South Africans are forcibly removed from, from the land, many of them from cities, um, in the case of Cape Town, which I primarily study, um, Isiklosa-speaking black Africans were dumped over a thousand kilometers eastward. And, and if people have heard of um, Bantu stands, these sort of rural, underdeveloped areas, really far from cities, 
Uh, many of them had no kind of ancestral ties there, or, and so they're forcibly removed from the first, for the first time. And then within cities, um, people are, are forcibly, black people are forcibly pushed to the periphery in these peri-urban townships. But you can't just dump people on an open plot of land, and so the apartheid state develops this, this delivery apparatus. They actually develop a waiting list for housing, they start building townships, the township in which I um, carried out my, field, my ethnographic field work in Cape Town, Mitchell's Plain, wasn't constructed until the mid-70s, or the largest, um, the largest black African township in, in Cape Town, Kyalicha, wasn't constructed until my own lifetime, so in, in the early to mid-1980s. But then after apartheid, something shifts, and I, I argue in the book that the relationship between delivery and dispossession is kind of inverted, we can say that um, now dispossession enables delivery instead of delivery enabling dispossession. So what do I mean? The post-apartheid state is really, um, and, and the government has staked its very legitimacy on remedying the racist wrongs of apartheid. And so you wind up with, with this geography of racial relegation, and, and so housing delivery is all about really delivering formal homes to those who have been forcibly evicted. Um, but what winds up happening is the state doesn't have the capacity to deliver you know, all of these millions of homes. They've, they've delivered four million formal homes already since 94. Um, they don't have the capacity to deliver these homes at once, of course. Now the average time on the waiting list for housing in Cape Town exceeds 60 years, six zero, right? But the average life expectancy in South Africa, according to the UN, is 63 years. And so what this means is that, you know, clearly people can't wait 60 years for housing, and so they occupy land in the meantime. Um, but this is seen as a kind of sign of the state's failure. So housing officials view these new occupations as essentially um, interfering with the process of, of delivery. And I can talk more about that. But they wind up moralizing these, these occupations. And the irony is that when they see these new occupations, um, often, because they view them as an embarrassment, a kind of sign of the failure of the state to deliver, they move people into formal housing um, developments. But when they do this, they then sort of retroactively attack these people as what they call queue jumpers, as if they're jumping to the top of the waiting list. But the irony being that government officials themselves produce these queue jumpers. Um, I have to say, in, in studying land occupations now for over a dozen years ethnographically, I've yet to encounter a single land occupier who's, who occupied land because they were trying to get a formal house. They occupied land out of necessity, for dignity, autonomy, all sorts of reasons, right? Then what happens is a judge will authorize an eviction of these new land occupations, uh, um, denigrating these land occupiers as queue jumpers. And so it takes a really moralizing kind of tone. And so the book is about, fundamentally about the post-apartheid period, but I also really try to develop this previous iteration, and this previous articulation between delivery and dispossession under apartheid. I want to ask about these relational uh, cases a bit. You know, it's two uh, different land occupations with two different outcomes. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you could ground us in the field work that you were doing, talk about those two cases and what explains the different outcomes with regards to eviction, only one getting evicted, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, this variation was really, variation in outcome, I should say, is really, really crucial to what I was trying to do because 
when I wrote this book, there's a whole literature on, on evictions and displacement and land grabs that I should say, and to be clear, inspired the writing of this book. But it's also written at a level of abstraction where there's a kind of overarching rationale for a city government to evict people, right? So we might talk about the language of whether it's gentrification or development or accumulation, ground rent, etc., right? Ultimately, a kind of economic or state-driven developmentalist um, sort of rationale. But what that sort of argument doesn't tend to do is answer the question, all right, there's thousands and thousands of people occupying land every single year. The state doesn't have the capacity to evict them all at once. And so I was interested in how it selects who get evicted, who, you know, who ultimately get evicted, and which occupations are ultimately tolerated. And so in these two occupations that I studied, um, one is fully cleared within a year, the other remains today, more than 20,000 people living on the plot of land. Um, they began just down the road from each other in the same township, Mitchell's Plain in Cape Town. I should say it's the largest so-called colored township. So under apartheid, um, there, were, there were formerly four ethno-racial categories devised by the apartheid state, white, Indian, colored, and black African. And so in this largest colored township in the country, um, Mitchell's Plain, there are these two massive land occupations. I mean, they both begin with thousands of people at once. The first um, begins with a thousand at once, the second um, a few hundred at once, but then within a matter of weeks, thousands are moving in. And, you know, often people talk about land occupations as if they just so happen, right? That's a politics of necessity and someone sort of stumbles onto a plot of land and then sets up shop, but they're very well organized. But the bulk of writing on, on land occupations tends to be um, politicized, formal social movements leading these things, when empirically that's not who's leading the bulk. You know, even as much as I wish that were who, who, who is leading um, these occupations, the bulk of the folks involved, it, it really is a, a politics of necessity, and they do get politicized typically during the process and develop a certain politics. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but so what winds up happening is these two land occupations, if I were to have predicted in advance the outcome, I would have predict predicted the opposite. One is on private property, one is on municipally owned land, so public land. Um, and I would have expected the city to allow people to squat on this public but very remote land. It's not visible from any major thoroughfare. It's at the, um, adjacent to the poorest neighborhood in this township. Um, there weren't people making any uh, middle-class residents making demands for the removal. Um, insofar as this, you know, if you were to make an argument about upholding a certain um, racial order, it was the same, um, it was majority colored occupiers occupying so-called colored space. Why would this matter? Why in the world would a post-apartheid government care? Race tends to map onto party affiliation. And um, uh, people might know that the African National Congress or the ANC rules nationally, but in Cape Town, it's a different party, the Democratic Alliance, and overwhelmingly, so-called colored people vote for the DA. And so this was potentially DA voters in DA space. You know, no, no conceivable reason they would have been forcibly removed, and yet they were within a year. This other occupation took place on actually two adjacent parcels of private property. The landowners filed an injunction for the removal. 
um, middle class residents across a very major thoroughfare protested in the streets demanding their immediate removal and I should say um, it was a mixed race occupation with the majority of the participants being Isikosa speaking black Africans occupying the land. Um, this mattered because local politicians would have suspected that they were not DA voters and wanted them gone, yet ultimately they're tolerated. Why? This is where the relational theory of the state that I developed comes in. Um, and so in the book, what I do is talk about, I think if I were to put it succinctly, I'd say something like, um, instead of just imagining this omniscient state that gazes out over a landscape of populations, almost naturalizes them, and then you know, chooses this one over this one, what winds up happening is that how people self-organize affects how the state sees them. But how they self-organize uh, self is in turn affected by how they see the state. So their, their kind of historical experience with that state affects how they see the state, affects how they self-organize, which then affects how the state sees them. So let me make it concrete, just because I know that's, that's um, at a kind of high level of abstraction. So in one of these land occupations, the one that was evicted, um, it was called Kapteinsklip. Most participants were coming from backyard shacks. So typically when we think of people living in, in shacks in general, so informal housing in the global south, we might imagine these sprawling informal settlements. But in Mitchell's plan, the predominant mode of informal dwelling is backyarding, which means um, you set up a relationship, potentially like a, a tenant-renter, a, a tenant-landlord um, relationship with someone in a formal house and they let you build a shack in the backyard, or maybe it's a family member. But the security in that backyard means that you're not in regular contact with the repressive apparatus of the state. Meanwhile, the folks who occupied this other occupation that was ultimately tolerated, called Citralo, they were living in a large informal settlement, and as new shacks went up, the repressive apparatus of the state, so the anti-land invasion unit, which is an arm of the Department of Human Settlements, or the housing department in, in the municipal government in Cape Town, the police, were coming in on a regular basis, and not just harassing them, but um, repossessing their, their building materials, threatening them with arrest, and so they, in that second occupation, viewed the state as a kind of antagonist. So then going back to the first occupation, what winds up happening is there's this, um, this organization called the Mitchell's Plain Housing Association, and it represents the occupation as if it's legal. It's of course not. It's illegally moving on to a plot of land to which people lack legal title. Um, but the Mitchell's Plain Housing Association represented this, this occupation as the distribution of plots to people in need. So they actually signed people up, people paid a small fee, they all met that morning, and people got down on their hands and knees and actually um, you know, almost enclosed the land as if they were homeowners in the making. And so in the book, I argue, following, um, or, or deploying a term from the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, that it's serialized occupation, or Sartre calls this a series. So almost atomized. And they're atomized because the way they see the state is a partner in delivery, right? But in this other occupation, Sikalo, it's quite different. They see the state as their ceaseless antagonist. And so instead, what do they do? They tend to band together. And I hesitate to call this a social movement. Um, I call it, also drawing on Sartre from his book, Critique of Dialectical Reason, call it a, a fused group. Um, it's not quite a social movement, I argue, because they're not making demands on anyone, right? They're trying to evade the gaze of the state, but it's 
it's what um, the sociologist Asif Bayat calls a social non-movement. So they move onto this plot of land and um, as this, this fused group. So again, in one case, fully atomized, they're a series. Second case, they're, they're organized in terms of this fused group, almost like a social movement. And this is what I argue is their civil society articulation, how they appear in the register of civil society. But of course, as Gramsci argues, civil society goes hand in hand with political society, um, and that they appear on the register of political society quite differently. So in the first, I would have expected these homeowners in the making to be tolerated by a neoliberal state. But instead, they're seen as, as opportunists jockeying for these plots of land, and a judge subsequently um, attacks them as, as opportunists, as queue jumpers in the courtroom, and orders their eviction. In the case where there's a um, quite militant fused group, I would have expected them to be seen as a, a threat to the state, um, and a threat to the nearby property owners, the, the property owners on the land, and et cetera, right? But what winds up happening is they elect a representative council, and they appear essentially as an informal government. Um, and so what, by the time it makes its way to the courtroom, the judge, using again, deploying this moralistic language, views them as essentially legible and legitimate, and orders, the, um, orders against their eviction, and they're tolerated and remain on the land today, even a decade later. That's helpful, and I want to follow up about this argument that you, you make with Antonio Gramsci, who, as you know, is a big influence on this uh, show, Conjuncture, uh, inspired by his and Stuart Hall's work. I think that, you know, the way that you talk about civil society and political society articulations as uh, being comprehensible through Gramsci's theory of the integral state mm -hmm. uh, would be helpful for our viewers and, and listeners to understand better. Of course, you know, uh, most notions of the state kind of see it as what, administration buildings, uh, bureaucrats and then civil society, private organizations, family, the church, the media, somehow it's separate. But of course Gramsci doesn't accept that. It gives us a much more expanded view of the state, uh, what he calls an integral state. And you use that to theorize uh, these dynamics. So I wonder if you could talk about the argument you make about the integral state and how it enables you to see the civil society and political society articulations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll say that when I was writing this book, I was deeply influenced by a few folks writing about Gramsci. So Peter Thomas, um, Wolfgang Fritz Haug, um, the late Joseph Buttigieg, all of whom maintain this conception of the integral state, which ultimately argues, as does Gramsci, uh, as does Gramsci I would maintain, that civil society and political society are inseparable. Now, here's this great line that I won't quote verbatim, but where he says that um, you know, the separation between political and civil society is not an organic, but a methodological one. Um, and, and it's a widely cited line. Um, and, and what he means by this, at least in my view, is that we can't think of political and civil society, or I should say societies, as empirically separable, as, as if um, this thing we call political society is the set of, as you just said, of the set of government buildings over there, and then civil society is also off organization outside the purview of the state. But I think methodologically, it is important conceptually to maintain this distinction. 
What this doesn't mean is that they're not related, they're two separate spaces, but you'll notice in the book, I have separate chapters. I mean, I, I really struggled with this when writing the book, um, whether, to have, whether to separate civil and political societies into distinct moments, um, because when you use the kind of temporal language of moments, it's as if first they're civil society, and then it's articulated in political society, and that's not what I'm trying to do in the book. Um, I, I would argue that it's always necessarily simultaneously both, that every civil society articulation always has a political society articulation, which is to say that people do self-organize. That is a civil society articulation. Um, and I think it's, you know, uh, just as a, a kind of side note here, there's this massive literature on whether it's, I mean, going back to older Marxist writing on, on surplus, po surplus populations or the lumpen proletariat, and then, you know, thinking in, in subaltern studies or even late subaltern studies, I don't even know if it counts as subaltern studies anymore, say the work of Partha Chatterjee, where he says that, um, and having a different meaning of political and civil society, he argues that, um, that the urban poor can't organize in civil society. They're relegated to being a population, and that's what he calls um, political society. And I, my intervention is to say that the urban poor do self-organize, and the way they articulate themselves is crucial, not for some abstract moral reason or just because I'm going to throw the word agency in there and put a check next to the thing, but because it actually affects policy outcomes. And so what I'm trying to do here, and really the, the rationale behind writing this book, if I had to say, if I had to, to choose a single goal in writing this book, which is tough, I'd say that I really wanted to provide, let's say, uh, micro foundations to the concept of the integral state to see what does it look like in practice? Because, you know, I know how to write about it on this theoretical register, but I wanted to see at the level of everyday life, how do we understand the fact that political and civil society are, are inextricable? Um, and ultimately do affect these outcomes, right? I mean, I'm arguing in the book that the civil society, this, um, that self-organization, and so the civil society articulation produced these political society articulations which ultimately lead to these eviction outcomes. That's quite different from the typical writing on, on eviction, displacement, land grabs, where it's again this kind of omniscient state that gazes out upon a landscape of populations and maybe chooses this one, chooses that one. Um, but the self-activity of those who constitute populations is really alighted altogether. And again, it's not that I want to sort of bring them back in just for their own sake or, I mean, clearly I do. But I also think that, um, that it has real implications for explaining outcomes here. Yeah, you, you depict these as kind of wishful characterizations, that mm. there's heroic organizations that are leading. And so part of the emphasis on self-activity is, uh, as you say, to understand the political possibilities of everyday life on one hand, but also to try to grapple with, as I understand the argument, what actually motivates these struggles and what are struggles that are not determined in advance. So these policy outcomes are the product of these struggles. So part of what's at stake is to try to understand what's actually going on in these land occupations and not just kind of accepting slogans as, as theory, as I understand. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. You know, there's, there's quite a few well-organized um, 
groups, both fighting evictions and leading land occupations in South Africa who are doing valiant work. Um, I've acted, actively supported them over the years, but I'll say that um, I do think they get the bulk of the coverage when, of course, most land occupations don't involve these groups. And, and they're really emerging. I mean, I found it quite interesting because we imagine land occupations as these, um, you know, I, I should say, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, mouth, but I imagine land occupations as these, um, you know, as, as decommodification movements, um, as repossession in the face of dispossession. And to be clear, it is both of those things, but not necessarily self-consciously so. Um, I found again and again it emerged um, in the context of struggles for dignity, autonomy. I mean, um, a lot of the people participating in, in these land occupations, maybe their grandparents or even their parents got housing under apartheid, and now three generations later, they're all still living in the same two to three bedroom, tiny little concrete homes, overcrowded or else pushed to backyard shacks. They have kids of their own. Um, they feel slighted. And so being in a land occupation, while it's obviously more precarious than living with relatives, um, accords a certain amount of dignity or autonomy, and I don't want to romanticize it, but this is the language that people I interviewed themselves used. And, and so this motivated the occupation, but once they find themselves in struggle, they develop a certain politics. Sometimes the language of decommodification subsequently enters the mix, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they do form um, well-organized social movements. One, out of, um, one that emerged out of some of the occupations I was studying in 2000, late 2011 was called the Housing Assembly and still exists today, tries to coordinate multiple forms of struggles from land occupations, um, renters, people fighting for social housing, people who have received formal housing but it's in fact crumbling already, which is the case for actually the majority of delivered homes since the end of apartheid. Um, and so it's an attempt to unite all of these folks as not just engaged in squatter struggles or formal housing struggles, to unite them as subjects of housing crisis um, and form a, a kind of united body. And so again, what I'm not trying to do here is be dismissive of social movements. I think they're really, really crucial, but rather to be, let's say, realistic and I should say there's a pessimistic edge to the book, um, which I wrote into it on purpose, not because I'm a pessimistic person. I should say I tend to be optimistic in the scheme of things, but I also wanted, wanted to make sense of, um, as I put it in the book, hegemony as it actually exists and the conditions under which people are, are organizing. And I don't think it does us any favors to, to romanticize those conditions or even to romanticize movements um, in cases where they don't necessarily succeed. So I think if we want to take strategy seriously, whether or not it's a pessimistic view, we need to be um, really attentive to the conditions under which people are self-organizing. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think, you know, it reminds us that uh, Gramsci, as Michael Tennings put it elsewhere, is a theorist of organizing and of organisms yes. and not simply of, you know, party politics. And in fact, you know, in part of the book, you show where parties or their front groups, uh, you know, far from organizing, actually lead to a kind of factionalism and uh, that prevents the 
very things that they purport to advance. Is that right? Yeah, that's no, absolutely. I mean, there's a really interesting literature in, in sociology, my own discipline that emerged maybe seven years ago called political articulation, you know, um, inspired by Gramsci, Leclau, with this notion that, that parties organize civil society, something like that. And I think what I found was actually parties, political parties played a disorganizing force in the case of these land occupations. Um, in the book, I talk about not just front groups, but some of these upstart political parties that would send someone in. And the idea would be, um, you know, land occupations are enormous. And you have 20,000. I mean, another land occupation that's not in the book that, that um, I spent some time with is now over 60,000 people. So these upstart political parties that get people, let's say, in with the land occupation, can then subsequently, once this land occupation becomes tolerated and potentially politically formalized, and it becomes part of a political ward, and then it gets a ward counselor. And so you can imagine how there's this kind of um, pipeline to becoming a ward counselor and ultimately an elected official. So parties get involved, but they jockey with one another, and there are always multiple political parties involved. Um, so it was a really divisive force, and, and factions start to coalesce around each of these upstart party. So sometimes it's, it's as simple as a front group for the ANC. Um, sometimes it might be an actual representative from the Democratic Alliance, the governing party in Cape Town. Sometimes it's one of the smaller parties. So I encountered um, ranging from representatives of the Economic Freedom Fighters, a self-proclaimed Marxist Fanonist party and the third largest in, in South Africa today. Um, it's an upstart white supremacist party that tried to align itself with colored land occupiers and build a white colored block against African occupiers, black African occupiers. And so really complicated politics, but almost always divisive in this case. Yeah. So, you know, you, you really warn against, you know, sweeping generalizations of mm -hmm. social movements, being attentive to the actual concrete dynamics as they're unfolding uh, in these two Cape Town squatter communities. Um, and you're also wary um, and warn us against kind of broad sweeping generalizations about housing, gentrification, mm -hmm. neoliberalization. Um, and I'd be remiss not to ask you, since we're in New York City, here at the Tammet Library at NYU, an epicenter of the housing crisis nationally, also the place that's produced some of the most influential uh, social theorists of capital, the state, space, housing, um, David Harvey and Neil Smith. And you talk about in the book how their theories both inspired you mm -hmm. to think through these housing struggles, um, but also that uh, there's a problem with uncritically applying theories developed in northern cities to southern cities. And I wonder if you could say what you think is at stake in that intervention in the book. Yeah, no, great question. Um, you know, this book was in many ways inspired by the late Neil Smith's work on, on what he called gentrification frontiers, right? And um, so I imagined when I began this project, when I first envisioned this project, that I was going to map using GIS and do a kind of quantitative um, GIS correlation of, of eviction frontiers, as I was going to call it. And I would simply get government data and go from there. And of course, the data is not publicly available. Why? It includes um, 
it includes a kind of coding for where the government is about to install new potable water taps, new toilets, and they're afraid it's going to spawn new land occupations as if, you know, as, as if there's a bunch of land occupiers out there about to uh, decipher GIS coding or whatever else. But um, what I found was actually quite different. I mean, even in these two land occupations, if we were to follow the, the literature on gentrification or even um, going back to some of David Harvey's work in the late 70s where he starts to talk about the shift from the primary to the secondary and tertiary sectors of, of capital and um, or rather circuits of capital and, and this um, kind of shifting of capital into the built environment, searching for really new sources of profitability. What I found was that in the case of the evicted um, settlement, nothing has been done with the land a decade later. I was 11, uh, about 11 years later now, I was just there in November, same plot of land, and there's a few people squatting in tents, but there's been no development since. I mean, it, it really raises questions as to why the government was so intent upon clearing the land. Meanwhile, when it came to private property held by two distinct landlords, um, much more valuable than this other land, they tolerated the occupation. And so what I'm not saying here is that there's no gentrification going on in, in Cape Town. Of course there is. Um, proximal to the, the city center, it's exactly what you see. There's neighborhoods, and great research on this stuff, um, in neighborhoods proximal to the city center with names like Woodstock and Salt River. But once you get out to the, where the bulk of people live in Cape Town, it's called the Cape Flats, and over 60% of the population lives there, nothing like gentrification is going on. Um, and so what I, you know, how I might put it schematically is to say I was desperately searching for this economic logic of displacement and of eviction and instead found a kind of political logic, which isn't to say it's fully disarticulated from the economic logic, but this political logic where was government, government officials um, trying to have people evicted and trying to have these land occupations evicted in the name of defending essentially a welfare state. Now, to be clear, evicting these land occupiers has no benefit to the welfare state. I want to be really clear about that. But the key point is that these housing officials think that it does, that clearing these occupations is going to make the housing delivery system function more normally. And um, so it's a kind of, you know, as much as I went into this thinking I was going to find some kind of devious capitalist sitting in, in the civic center in Cape Town and interview them and find a smoking gun, Many of them were quite benevolent and wanted to see housing delivery function. They sincerely believed that land occupations were interfering here. Now, this isn't to say every housing official. There's some examples in the book where, where folks are quite awful. But, um, but in general, um, this really is an attempt, I think, on the part of housing officials to uphold this, this kind of delivery apparatus or really protect it as they see it from land occupiers, even if, again, I really want to emphasize this, land occupations don't interfere with, with housing delivery. People need somewhere to go in the meantime. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, thinking back about how might you apply this analysis or these insights to a place like New York or even the U.S. more generally. I mean, I think what's really interesting about the writings on eviction in a U.S. context is they tend to be, you know, to use the language of the book, serialized, that we think about renters from landlords on this individualized basis, 
and it really preempts any kind of collective struggle. And one thing, I mean, especially in a place like New York, but really in most major cities, most people, or sorry, most, um, yeah, most folks who are renting are renting from corporate landlords. In other words, what this means is that as much as um, the kind of tenant-landlord relationship has tended historically to serialize in the language of the book, um, renters, and I think really militate against any kind of collective challenge, um, which isn't to say we don't see tenants' unions, and we do, but they've been relatively exceptional uh, up to this point. And, you know, we see great fighting tenants' unions in places like Houston, Kansas City, the Bay Area right now, L.A., but, um, but you'd expect to see them on a, on a mass scale. But one reason I think that historically we haven't has to do with the serialization of, of renters in this way. And so the fact that, um, that landlords tend to be corporate means that people can potentially band together and make demands collectively. And so I think this is where a political project of, of tenants' unions and other forms of, of self-organizing become really, really crucial, which is to say re-articulating the tenant-landlord relationship not as an individualized or, or serialized phenomenon, but as something that needs to be challenged collectively and, and in fact can on the very basis of the fact that these are corporate landlords, right? Yeah. And the state remains a key site of struggle in that uh, as well, right? Oh, uh, you know, I, th I think of the importance of having that relational theory of the state. And there's a um, CUNY professor here, John Whitlow, that writes mm. really importantly about this, the state and uh, real estate struggles and the confrontation with what he calls a real estate state. But I wanted to follow up with this about, you know, your analysis of the current conjuncture in the U.S. because while your field work has been focused on post-apartheid South Africa, you have done a lot of work to intervene in this broader conjuncture, particularly through your work as an editor for Spectre. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about uh, an essay that you wrote in April of 2020, so we're a little over three years on where you suggest that an organic crisis is upon us. Of course, this is, you know, the pandemic, uh, massive unemployment, an ecological crisis. And you talk about the organic crisis in Gramscian terms, where there's a fundamental crisis of uh, the state, where the capitalist class is unable to resolve its uh, legitimacy crisis or crisis of hegemony, and you talk about the ways that Gramsci's analysis of an organic crisis can help us make sense of these cascading crises mm. that can sometimes appear as if you know, they were separate. So looking back three years later, are we still in an organic crisis? How would you characterize the, the moment uh, that we're in now, Zach? Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is, you know, fundamentally an, uh, an organic crisis, you know, especially when I read all of these pieces that have, for whatever reason, proliferated over the last three months or so, using this term polycrisis. Um, and I think where, and, and you see this in, I mean, especially the Financial Times, Adam Tooze did a good piece on this. And um, what I think is fundamentally different about an organic crisis than this concept of polycrisis is the fact that not to use my favorite word, but they're all articulated, necessarily so, 
in the case of an organic crisis. Whereas polycrises, it's relatively contingent. These various crises emerge all at once, but there's no explanation as to why now, other than some kind of vague gesture to anything from imperial decline to the end of civilization or you know something like this. But I think the Gramscian analysis um, fundamentally links this to A, economic crisis, but B, as, as you just pointed out, that this economic crisis is always linked to a political crisis and a crisis of, of democracy, right? I mean, I think one thing to note, to put South Africa in conversation with the US, one thing to note is that in both cases, um, you don't have a real hegemonic party. So I should mention in South Africa, the ANC is in precipitous decline. It will probably lose the, the national elections in 2024 for the first time ever in post-apartheid South Africa. It's never lost um, and will likely lose in 2024. In the case of the US, I mean, Trump goes without saying, but what I might say is that um, there's nothing like uh, an old-style hegemonic bloc or historic bloc being cobbled together either in South Africa or in the US. And so instead, um, and this gets at a whole debate about how we understand this concept of passive revolution. And there's quite a bit of writing, I think, recently. Peter Thomas has a great piece on this, arguing essentially that, passive that the new form of hegemony has become passive revolution. I tend to, to really stick to um, what Gramsci wrote in, in the selections from the prison notebooks under um, Notes on Italian History, thinking about passive revolution and hegemony as two alternative trajectories, where when a hegemonic bloc can be cobbled together, a party or really a fundamental class, which, you know, of course, party is the nomenclature of class, um, can construct hegemony. But in the case of passive revolution, it's this almost flailing attempt, right? And so we see um, the GOP in the US context sort of attempting, and maybe successfully so, but attempting to hail this proverbial white working class, whatever that means, um, ultimately probably appealing primarily to the petty bourgeoisie. But, and then you see on the, the democratic side, on the one hand, an incompetence, but at the same time, this kind of image of a new, of Biden as the new FDR, right? And so you start seeing Biden invoke all of this, this language around um, industrial programs and new, new deals and, and this sort of thing, even if they're not actually implemented as such. Um, as an attempt to, to not quite construct a hegemonic bloc, right, but do something different. And that difference, I think, is ultimately passive revolution, absorbing something like resistance. In the case of South Africa, same thing. Um, so the ANC is, is split into, you know, it's, it's in name it's one party, but it's really two parties cobbled together under, under one banner. And one is kind of, um, Almost actually, well, no, I can't call them the Biden and the Trump side of things. It's too different. But, but um, one of these, these sides um, is linked to the current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who's a kind of anti-corruption crusader, even though millions of rand and cash were recently found inside his, uh, inside his sofa. Couch, and, yeah. yeah, right, and, yeah. All kinds of, and, and then the other faction is called the Radical Economic Transformation, or RET faction. And they use this kind of pseudo-radical language but ultimately, um, this was Jacob Zuma's faction. They're, they're aspiring politicians now who will probably succeed Zuma. Um, but 
here, there's a kind of invocation of this radical language, even if there's nothing actually being implemented. And so here's where I might compare Zuma to Trump, even though the politics are on different planets. There is an attempt, I think, of both figures to invoke a, a language of radicalism and that, that bears no, you know, no relationship with reality. It's not like there's any kind of redistributive policy or anything like it, or land reform, or access to housing, or... Um, but if we think about this kind of empty language, you know, Trump railing against um, regulations in general, and then the crowd cheers. You know, he constructs this enemy and knocks it down. And, um, and so what I don't want to do is turn to this kind of populist moment and say, aha, it's merely linguistic, but rather to say that th these kind of um, linguistic devices are central to the project, which is a class project, of passive revolution. But it's a class project that takes place in c under conditions where no class can, can actually construct a hegemonic block. Um, and that's what I think is quite different from, you know, in this conjuncture, from a previous conjuncture, even, I might say, early neoliberalism. I don't want to say that we're in post-neoliberalism yet, but um, whatever this moment is, this kind of strange interregnum, um, I think that no class and no party has been fundamentally able to construct a hegemonic block, which has led to all kinds of, as you know, it's almost trite to invoke it, but that line about morbid symptoms. Um, but these morbid symptoms aren't these contingently emergent kind of haphazard symptoms, but we see, um, you know, we, c we need to link together all of these crises. And so it's no coincidence that we see, say, um, the set of crises that led to and are continuing to lead to mass uprisings in the streets. But if we think of summer 2020, um, and this, this racial capitalist crisis, if we think of the public health crisis and the crisis of social reproduction tied to, to the pandemic, if we think of, um, it always feels like we're on the brink of some kind of economic crisis, um, and not always, I should say, but since about three months before the pandemic, um, when we started to see these in inverted yield curves, and now all of a sudden um, with the, the, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, and, you know, we have a, a, an economic crisis. And, and so it's to say that these, when we use a language like, or, or a concept like polycrises, um, we say that oh, all of these things are happening simultaneously. But I think it's incumbent upon us as, as Gramscians to really link these together. And, um, and so that's what I was trying to do in writing the piece, which was more of a provocation, I think, than an answer. Um, I don't want to purport to have a definitive answer as to how these are linked. And I think it's dangerous to revert to a certain kind of economism and just say, aha, it's all linked to the fundamental economic crisis and this produces some kind of epiphenomenal set of crises that are linked together, but rather to see um, in all its complexity, how are these things linked together as what Gramsci called an organic crisis. Yeah, and this is the hard work of analyzing a conjuncture, right? It's, uh, so I, I really appreciate your, your contributions in that direction. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask if there's anything I haven't asked that you would like to add. Oh, that's tough. Um, you know, I might say that um, one thing that I didn't integrate into the book for complicated reasons at the time, uh, I mean, partly it was, I have this kind of proliferation of, of concepts in the book, and so wound up keeping this concept of racial capitalism 
out of the book altogether. And I think increasingly since I published the book, I've come obsessed with, with South African conceptualizations of, of racial capitalism. Um, and, and the way it figures into the book, even if it's this kind of you know, absent presence or something like it, is to say that um, the anti-apartheid movement was of course an anti-racist movement, but that ultimately, in this key juncture, became disarticulated from the anti-capitalist movement. Um, there was a fundamental core of the anti-apartheid movement that was always anti-capitalist. And, and I'm oversimplifying here, but to say that um, as the anti-apartheid movement became hegemonized by the ANC and then ultimately found its way into power, what happens after the end of apartheid does very little to reverse the, um, the racist distribution of people in space. I mean, what I was calling in, in the book um, racist relegation or racist geographies. Uh, and it's why you see today relatively comparable mapping of, of people by race in mutually exclusive enclaves. And it's not even black and white. The category of black then gets disaggregated and you have so-called colored townships, sometimes ethno-linguistic you know, ethno townships or else either um, uh, black African townships, Indian townships. And, and so it's to say that um, racial capitalism is alive and well in, in South Africa today and I've become increasingly obsessed with some of these earlier debates and, and really thinking about, um, I mean, this is where Gramsci comes back in and this concept of passive revolution, the extent to which there's a passive revolution within the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and these, this concept of racial capitalism falls away. And, and as the anti-apartheid movement um, is no longer, you know, becomes no longer anti-capitalist, this leads to a trajectory of persistent racial capitalism today. And so I don't want to suggest that simply the failure of the anti-apartheid movement led to all the troubles in, in South Africa today. Of course not. But it is to say that I think um, that the defanging of the anti-apartheid movement, the, the loss of its anti-capitalist dimension, which was always previously connected to the anti-racist dimension, and the separation of these two dimensions, I think, has been disastrous. Um, and so, I mean, in, in work I'm doing right now, I'm really trying to think about these earlier debates going back, started um, going back to the early 1970s, and now I've been going back to the 1920s, um, work I'm doing with the sociologist Marcel Perret, writing this stuff up. Well, thank you very much, Zach. I also know you're working on a book on the topic, which uh, perhaps we can have you back on a future episode of Conjecture to talk that about. Be, that would be wonderful, Jordan. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Really appreciate it.